I'm Damian Bolwa, Managing Editor of the San Francisco Chronicle. Today on Fifth and Mission, my conversation with John Burris, the Oakland civil rights attorney who represents clients in many of the Bay Area's most high-profile police brutality cases. We'll talk about the George Floyd case, some of his most famous clients, from Rodney King to the family of Oscar Grant, and his suspicion about the slogan, Defund the Police. John, wish we could do this in person, but thanks for being on the podcast. Good to be with you as always. It's been a long time. We've uh, covered a lot of stories for me down through the years. Yeah, we have talked a lot over the years on some of the biggest cases in the Bay Area, in, in Oakland, and Vallejo. It is such a time for police reform. And before we get into some of the specifics, I want to ask you about the George Floyd case. When you first saw that video of Derek Chauvin with his knee on George Floyd's neck, what did you think and what did it bring up? Well, first I thought, he's going to kill this man. And then second thought was Rodney King. I remember how horrified I was at the time of watching the video of this constantly pounding on him uh, without any regard for him as a human being. I felt the same way about George Floyd. I said, you have your uh, knee on this man's neck and you are cutting off his airways and there seemed to be a lack of regard for him. Then the next question is, why are you doing this? What, what did he do to justify this? So did it jump out to you as this is going to be a big moment? No, it didn't jump out to me that this is going to be a big, big moment. Cases have geographical limitations. I, I certainly thought that it would be a big case uh, in the area, in, in the Minneapolis area, maybe in the Midwest. But I didn't think that it would be a worldwide event, nor as I thought in Rodney King when I saw it, that it was going to be a worldwide event. So you never know uh, what case will take off and, and, and capture the, the heart and soul of, of a community or even a nation. In the weeks afterward, there was a lot of attention on it, probably perhaps more attention on one case than we've seen since Rodney King. And then the officers were charged. And I wonder how you're regarding officers being charged criminally in these cases. Why is it happening? Does it require this kind of attention to sort of push prosecutors to make a decision? Well, well, number one, I am in favor of prosecution of police officers in these types of cases, particularly death cases and and some beating cases as well. Recognizing it's a real challenge prosecuting police officers, and that's why we don't have very many of them. We're having more in different parts of the country, mainly I think when you have a different makeup of the community. I've talked to a number of black prosecutors in, in southern states and other parts of the country, and they're actually having prosecutions. They look in, in Atlanta, Georgia, and Virginia. And, and so those, uh, the, the geographical makeup matters a lot. And say, for example, the Bay Area, we haven't had but one criminal prosecution here, and that had to go to L.A. to do it. That was the Oscar Grant case. And, but there have been many cases here that I thought should be criminally prosecuted. Uh, but have not been because of, I think, the reluctance on the part of the DAs themselves to do it. Uh, their, their relationship with the police uh, is one that is sacrosanct, and they're very much tied uh, at the joint at the hip. At the same time, they also don't want to lose, and their fear they have this real fear of losing these particular cases because of their relationship with the police. And so uh, there are a lot of forces that prevent that from happening. Now, and, and George Floyd, that happened pretty quickly. So that was real, real easy to do in terms of criminal prosecution. A person had died. There was clear connection between that officer's conduct and the cause of death. 
The more challenging question was the other four officers who were either holding them down or standing by and watching. And, and there were real questions about whether those officers should be charged. But it was very much in the Rodney King case, I think, that even though all the officers had different levels of involvement, there was a real, real sense that this was a package. All these officers were in it together. Whether they agreed to be in it together or not, they acted in a conspiratorial way together, and therefore they all had to be charged. All right. But just to, to, to come back on that, as you know, there are people out there who say police officers shouldn't be charged with a crime like murder because it's fundamentally different. It's a it's a use of force or a or a at least from their perspective, a self-defense situation. And there's, there's something fundamentally different about that from like an, someone who uh, is in a domestic violence situation or an armed robbery. What what do you say to that, that people think the criminal code is not sort of properly applied here? Well, I, I do think that the criminal code can be applied, and I also think issues of murder are, are like any, I think, are domestically the same. You have defenses to murder, and it depends upon the circumstances. It depends upon the fact circumstances. Those uh, defenses are also available to police officers as well. Uh, and, and so it doesn't trouble me at all that an officer has shot someone in circumstances where he should not have done it because the circumstances were such that you had other means available to you, or you took the shot and a number of shots when you didn't have to do it. Just because you can don't mean you should. And I have seen many cases where I thought that the police officer was totally reckless in their regard for the life of the other person. And, and so, but every one of the cases, in my view, is not necessarily murder, because there are degrees of homicides. And so, yeah, you, we, we call these murders, but they may be manslaughters. That is to say, you had an honest, but uh, good faith, but unreasonable belief. Well, you should be charged with manslaughter like everyone else is. And I, I think that we're way too protective of officers' uh, use of deadly force. And because and, you always have situations where the officer claims that my life was in danger. Well, that's just not good enough from my point of view. You've got to have some basis, some objective facts that suggest that you did this because those were the alternatives that were available to you, the only alternative available to you. And, and so I think that we're not being too hard on police officers. They should be held accountable. And I think the reason why people feel this way is because they have not been held accountable in the past. Because I think if officers are held accountable, you will have situations where there'd be less willingness to shoot. And some of the studies that we've seen where officers, in terms of when you, when you pull the gun and shoot, whether it's a black person or white person, some of the evidence suggests, statistical data, is that white officers will hold their position longer maybe for a few seconds longer when they're facing a white person with a gun or think they should shoot versus that a black person. That would suggest to me that there's something else going on in that person's head that would cause them to have to feel they have to shoot when on the same and similar circumstances, the white person, they don't shoot. And so I, I don't think we should let them off the hook. And, and the reason being, look, part of what we have here is a historical patterns here. And many, many African-American people have been shot and killed by police, well, unquestioned, unquestioned. You could not question it. And certainly in the South, in California, and other parts of the state. It's only, frankly, in the last 30 years, perhaps, since I've been involved in this, and so a few years before that, that we've had any real challenge to police officers' conduct. And so what happens is police officers were ingrained with a level of protection. That protection comes from the DA, but it also comes from society at large. And so now we're having a chance to kind of relook at this and see, well, maybe they're not entitled to the same kind of 
uh, protection they've always given. George Floyd is an example. Rodney King's an example. We have cases in the Bay Area that are examples that when an officer should not have used deadly force and should be held accountable. So uh, historically, they've gotten a real pass. I think we have to try to move from that systemic perspective that police are not to be held accountable and, and, and now try to get to a more balanced position. Maybe the new laws that have been established in the state of California, when they're talking more about whether was it necessary or not. That's an important step. And or whether the police officer put himself in danger himself by his own tactics and then had to shoot his way out of it. Those are things that I think we're giving more due consideration to now. And I don't think you get protection and should be given protection because you did something stupid or you were over aggressive or you failed to give due consideration to other alternatives and then you go and shoot and kill someone and you say, I had to. Well, that's not good enough. Yeah, like stepping in front of a a car that's uh, that's moving down a road, that's a, that's obviously one that I think it is in a lot of the cases that you're handling We now. see, and down through the years, I'm going to tell you, a few years back, we, we couldn't hardly win those cases. If an officer jumped in front of a car and shot into the front window and killed someone, he got a free pass or the case had little value. Now the departments are looking at those cases much more so now. And so you can't put yourself in harm's way in front of a car and then shoot your way out of it and say that it was justifiable. That's not, there's a question of whether that's criminal or not. One of the cases you may very well know about, Arboleta, is a case I'm working with over in Contra Costa County, where uh, his, uh, a, a Filipino man had some mental problems driving his car. Uh, he was in the wrong neighborhood, as I refer to as being brown in, in the neighborhood, walking while brown. And uh, he leaves, gets in his car, he's trying to leave. The police pursue him and really hadn't committed a crime. They just want to know what the hell he was doing. But as he's tried to scoop between two cars, one of the officers runs up beside him and shoots into the car four or five different times and claims he was under self-defense. To me, that officer should be held, held accountable for a criminal offense. Murder, certainly he should be charged. It might be a second, it might be a manslaughter, but he should be held accountable because if you don't hold that officer accountable, you send a clear message to all the other officers that, you know, you can get away with this even if you, make, even if you don't intend to be just a bad guy. If you do bad things, we're not going to hold you accountable for it. Yeah, and we should mention that that case is still not seen a charging decision from the Contra Costa District Attorney. John, I do want to switch gears for a second. I know people are, are some people know your background, but others do not. You grew up in Vallejo, which is now under a lot of controversy over the police department. Um, you know, were there, are there lessons from your youth in Vallejo? How was it? And, and that sort of led you to where you are now? I. Uh, Grew up uh, in Vallejo. It was a kind of semi-segregated town. Uh, everybody kind of lived in their own particular neighborhoods. I lived in essentially a black neighborhood, but two doors, two streets over was white, two streets over was black. You just didn't go into those particular neighborhoods. The thing that I remember most, although I did kind of go to an all-white school for my first four or five years, which was a different experience, is what I was taken aback by two things. One, the animosity between the races. And, and when I was in high school, it was common, common uh, to have race fights after football games or after school. If you went to a place up in Sebastopol or somewhere like that, but we used to play Napa and, and Napa and Vallejo fought all the time. And it was like blue collar white boys versus blue collar black guys. You know, everybody was from the South and they all came to these little towns to work in the shipyards during the war, which is what my family did. And, and so that was a period of time in the, early mid 60s when or 50s i should say it was a 50s 60s kind of 
innocence, if you will. Sports was a huge, huge deal. We all played uh, sports. Black guys played basketball. White guys played baseball. Everybody played football. Black guys ran track. That was the way it was in, in, in the town. But I didn't walk away uh, any kind of deep-seated bias or animosity toward anyone uh, or races at all. Uh, I was, the only thing I was interested in doing was getting out into town. Now, I had worked in the fields. And I had done hard work. And, I, and so I really wanted to get away from that particular lifestyle. I played ball, and, and so I had good friends in, in that sense. We, I will say this, though. We played sports in the streets. We, we played basketball in the backyards, and, and we didn't seem to have the presence of police around us. Sure, if you were jumping the fence and taking pictures and, and from people's yards, you might have a police chase you a little bit. But we didn't have, that I recall, beatings, the kind of stuff that we have now, or shootings. Those, that just wasn't part of the life that we had. Uh, there. And, but from my point of view, I, my, the values I got was more from family. You know, I got family values on how to, how to go forward and be successful and fight racism, be aware of racism, uh, be aware that you got to watch yourself along the way. Uh, and if you did, you can get, get through it all, which I, I did. Now, I, I, I know you went to Bolt Hall at Berkeley for law school, but, I, but remind me where you went to college. I, I went to college at Golden Gate University. I went there at, to be an accountant. And, and that's really because I was really good at numbers and everybody said you should be an accountant. I didn't know what the hell that was. And I did. And, I, and, and accounting turned out to be very hard work. And I got good grades and I got a job at a big accounting firm. And I did that for a couple of years. I, I hated it, hated it, hated it. And I ultimately uh, went to law school. My civil rights um, concepts were, I must admit, was always there. As a boy, small boy, I'm watching the civil rights movement unfold unfold in front of me, the, uh, the, the Little Rock, Arkansas kids, Martin Luther King, uh, the various marches, the dog, all this had a tremendous impact on my psyche. And I couldn't rationalize in my head where I was, you know, where you get to go to school, we went to school with white boys, white girls, everybody seemed to be in the same thing until you became adolescents, of course. But I, I didn't, I couldn't get the segregation thing because I didn't grow up that way. My family had left the South. And so they had talked about it, but they didn't dwell on it. So my observation was watching these events unfold and, and, and couldn't, uh, couldn't reconcile it with my own existence. Then I became a reader, and I started reading about the civil rights and reading about African-American history. So part of my whole plan here and desire is self-taught. And I, as I became involved uh, in law school, I was a leader in the law school. We had a big strike that I was involved in as a leader of a black graduate program. So I became politicized during that period of time in the um, early 70s. All right, John, I want to take a quick break. When we come back on Fifth and Mission, I want to ask you about how you went from being a prosecutor, uh, believe it or not, to a civil rights attorney. And, and I want to ask you about some of the big cases in, in Oakland and Vallejo. We'll be right back. I'm Damian Bowa with John Burris. You can support Fifth and Mission and the newsroom that creates it by signing up for unlimited Chronicle access at sfchronicle.com slash pod. Welcome back to Fifth and Mission. I'm Damian Bolwa. I'm joined by civil rights attorney John Burris, who has clients in a lot of the biggest police misconduct cases in the Bay Area. John, you started out not as a civil rights attorney and a defense attorney and a litigator, 
but as a prosecutor. Yeah, well, actually, I didn't start out as a prosecutor. I started out as a big firm in, in Chicago. You know, I was one of the guys that got the big firms, and I was there for a couple of years. Uh, I only switched to become a prosecutor because one of my good friends was saying that you, you can get good trial experience. I never had a philosophical interest in being a prosecutor, uh, other than the fact that it was a place to get experience. But more importantly, I didn't mind being a prosecutor when I was representing victims. When I was representing victims, whether it was a homicide victim or sex victim, those were, those were ideal work for me because that's, a, that's what I wanted to be, is represent people who were harmed. What I didn't like uh, as part of it was the law enforcement heavy-handedness of it, or everything had to be, and everything counted in terms of jail time and how much time. That, that just wasn't anything that I wanted. So for me, it was an easy transition uh, from being a local prosecutor. I was in Chicago as a prosecutor, in New York and in California as a prosecutor. I was easy for me to switch. But, but tell you where I, I wound up being in police work as a litigator, that had its foundation in Chicago. I happened to, and you may not know this, but Ralph Metcalf, who was the 1936 Olympics, was a city council person, or was a congressperson in, in Chicago at the time. He got upset because one of his best friends got beat up. And so he put together a commission. And that commission hired all these law students, and myself was one of them, to spend the summer interviewing victims of police brutality. And so that whole summer, all I did on weekends was interview people who had been beaten up by the police. That was sort of my indoctrination as to police abuse and what it means to people and the fact that that, that was allowed and was um, sanctioned to some extent by local government. So that caused deep in my mind, that was always there with me. And I was kind of just waiting and biding my time till I get to do it. Being a prosecutor was just a stop along the way. I didn't believe it, and I wasn't going to stay. A major case developed, uh, the, probably the, the turning point of my life, maybe, was uh, I was in the, I had left the prosecutor's office. It had been out 17 days. I want to say March 17th, thereabout, which is St. Patrick's Day. A young kid named Melvin Black was shot and killed uh, by police officers under very questionable circumstances. I was appointed by the mayor's office and the city council to conduct an independent investigation into the shooting. And from there, I got a chance to see um, how police worked, how they investigated cases. I turned out I, I, I had the position that was contrary to the local uh, DA, the police department, the U.S. attorney's office, and the city attorney's office. I was sort of a lone person out there saying that this shooting was outrageous and wrong. But it also was the underpinnings for my foundation because I understood clearly that just because the police says it so doesn't make it so. And therefore, people had to question the official positions of the cities, uh, of the police, and you couldn't worry about what cities thought about it because in many ways they're protective of, 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 of the police. So that's how I got started. And, and you know, I didn't have a life of criminal defense work uh, for about six years. But then I really got into my life's work. And that was doing police work in around 85. And I've been doing plenty of civil rights cases ever since. Okay, so uh, I want to ask you a couple of very specific questions about that work. First of all, you know, as reporters, when there is a, you know, a police shooting, when there might be a police brutality case, it is not surprising when we learn that you have the case. How do you get clients? Are there rules around that? Do, can you sell to them? Well, there are rules. There are solicitation rules. 
what happens in cases is you develop a, ref a reputation and you, it's all referral work. You know, I, you don't solicit clients. You can't go out to the scene and say, hey, I throw your car. At least I don't do that. I've, and, and I suppose a lot of it came back, came about as a consequence of my criminal defense work. I had a very good criminal defense lawyer, you know, and I also did, uh, was very receptive to police stuff. And in many criminal defense cases, there was police stuff in it because if you have a case where a person's been beaten up and he's charged with the crime, well, then that's a civil rights case. So there was this relationship that exists between criminal defense and plaintiff civil rights work. And that sort of helped me get started in many ways. And then it just kind of took off. Uh, one case begets another case begets another case. And pretty soon you're like riding in these cases. Right? Yeah, I, I don't know if you remember this. I don't know if you remember this, John, but one time I was covering the uh, Occupy movement and I was at uh, the, the camp in front of Oakland City Hall and on this um, chalkboard that people had put out, it said, if you need any legal representation, call John Burris with your phone number. And, and I immediately called your office because that's just what I do. I, I thought maybe you had clients already and I was just looking for stories. And you sent someone down to try to erase the chalkboard immediately. Yeah, because I don't know who did that. Uh, and, and I wasn't trying to get those kind of cases because I, I, that, that wasn't really my deal. Uh, but I, I didn't want it to appear like I was soliciting these cases, and that was very important to me. So I'm well aware of that, uh, to be very mindful. But I've been very fortunate. But, you know, the way I look at it, if you're successful, and the success is a sense of passion and belief in the system and the cases themselves. I really believe the, in, in clients. I believe that it's important for them to have representation, to stick up against people who are more powerful than them. I'm, I just, I get to do it. So I'm very fortunate that I can do that. And sure, look, there's a lot of criticism, criticism that will come uh, from other folks. I mean, I get them all the time. You know, people say wild things about me and stuff. But you know what? I said, you should get your own life. Yeah. yeah. Well, what about what about that? What about the criticism that comes from police officers who say that you contribute to a climate in which the very dangerous work that that they sometimes do um, is cast immediately in a criminal light? Yeah. Whatever police officers say about me, I welcome it because I know that if they real police officers know that what I'm trying to do is ensure the safety of other people, uh, every, non police officers. But police officers who know and understand what, what other officers do, they're not ashamed of what I'm doing. In fact, I get three cheers from them because they want somebody to say something about these police officers whom they can't say anything about because of the blue wall. So I'm not in any way uh, mindful of the negative criticism that I get. In fact, as I said to an officer one time, I said, look, if you criticize me, that means I'm doing something right. And I'm like hitting you right where it needs to be hit. Because if you are doing your work the way it's supposed to be done and you're treating people with respect and fighting crime in, in, a, in a constitutional way or not stopping people who should not be stopped, you would not have a problem with me because I'm not anti-police. I believe that you got to have law decent law enforcement, but I'm definitely against unconstitutional policing, definitely against racial profiling, or I've been in cases where they strip search them and they pull your pants down and humiliate people. Look, there's potential abuse by police. And I'm against it, period. I'm for good quality policing. I'm down for, but I'm definitely against uh, unconstitutional policing and humiliating people. Because when you humiliate somebody, 
you hurt them to the core of their very being. And, you know, I, I started writing this book once called When Grown Men Cry. And it was about the pain that I see in people's faces when they feel humiliated and they can't do anything about it. And so that's a big deal for me. It's the empire strikes back, right? Or strike at the empire because the everyday people can't strike. They don't, they don't have advocates. They can't, anybody can't come to them because when an incident takes place, the police tell their story and they always cast the victim or the decedent in the most negative way possible. Well, there's another story. And I want to make sure that story is gotten out as soon as possible, that the victim does not have to be silent. We see that with Sean Monterosa that I'm involved in right now. Or you see it uh, in the Salgado case, or you see it in- Or Oscar Grant. Or Oscar Grant. There's other stories to be told here. And part of my job is to help people understand that there's another side to these stories. And I like to do that as often and, and as soon as I can. Uh, with a certain strategic purpose, but uh, they do, but they should not remain silent. That's a big deal. Let's hit on a few local cases that are, I think, really important. Number one, the Oakland Riders case. Uh, people might recall a brutality case that led to a series of reforms that all these many years later are still under review. You were the plaintiff's attorney in the case, and that means you have a role in monitoring whether the police can get out of federal court supervision, right? Why are we still in this? Can uh, Mayor Libby Schaff bring Oakland through this? Well, I will say as a case, it is probably the most important case of all the other high visibility people in Kitterman. This is the most important case. And the reason why is that we were able at the time to really do some reform efforts here. We were able to look at the department and say, look, you got these kind of problems and let's see if we can adjust them. So we did. We wrote new policies. We put together 55 tasks. And now it was supposed to be completed in five years, right? And then we went to seven years, and now we're like 17 years. And so it's very, very disappointing uh, that it has not taken place. Uh, you know, I don't think there was a good faith effort early on the part of the police to get it done. I think that succeeding administrations, along with uh, Libby Schaaf, the present mayor, want to get it done. I think the, pro the previous mayor wanted to get it done. But a lot of it, the underpinnings of this is cultural change. And, and it's hard for officers, I think, in the long run to change their stripes. Even though most of these officers have come up after this agreement was put in place, they've had a hard time adjusting to it. Now, can it be done? I'm hopeful. You know, I, as I've been hopeful, I think it's going to get done. I think we're getting closer. Uh, there's an independent monitor there, and the monitor has to make the decision, a compliant officer. But I, I'm an optimist. We've done some very, very good work in this case. I mean, a lot of the stuff that countries are doing, uh, departments are doing around the country started right here in Oakland. There's body-worn cameras, the car cam cams, uh, the racial profile, the gathering of data. Uh, it was all part of And our numbers in shooting deaths have gone considerably down. So the problem is there are, there, there's a computerizing system that's supposed to be in place that has not been called a vision system that just cannot, cannot get done. And then there's a question of being consistency on the use of force. And, you know, sometimes we have good months, sometimes we don't. So we're not being able to get into compliance with it. Uh, we, we're still dealing with people out there on the street. And it's hard to get them to be mindful consistently about positive conduct they have with, with, with the community. Now, they're being held more, more held accountable. Uh, we are doing that. Um, but it's a struggle and a long-term problem. But I'm, look, we're so far much better, as a department, it's so much better 
than it was uh, when we started this case. Certainly, there's been some setbacks, of course, no question. That the, the thing with the uh, the, the, the young uh, young female woman who had the all the interacting inter with all those officers and the officers them scammed. Uh, those were bad setbacks that caused us then to take another look. And the reason why it's important, Damien, we were looking at the department from the outside. How do you treat the people in the community? Then it turns out that the officers are going through the back door, mistreating some of the people. So then we had to close that back door. And then we had to look at the supervisors again. So there's been, there's been a huge, I think, global look at the department, no doubt about that. And so I'm, I'm pleased that we weren't able to do it. I would like for it to end, no doubt about it. But I don't want it to end without us putting a final stamp on it and put, nail it down. And, and that's, I'm going to stay in the case until it happens. Yeah, and for people who don't know the reference, you were talking about a, a, a young woman who actually was underage at, at some time who was sexually exploited by officers in Oakland and in other departments around the Bay Area. I, John, I want to ask you about a scenario that has repeated itself numerous times in the Bay Area and has caused a lot of debate, and that is when officers come upon a person in a car with a gun who is asleep or unconscious. And those have tended to end really badly, um, and I'm not sure what the solution is. I've been involved in four of these cases, three in Oakland. Uh, in each of those cases, the person had fallen asleep at an intersection uh, or at a house, and they were asleep and they had a gun in their lap or nearby. And each occasion, the police has awakened them, and as they try to awaken, they shoot them, kill them. And the question always has been, did you give that person enough time to orient himself to where he was? And that's a factual question that I think that has not been answered properly. The other case that I'm involved in right now is up in Vallejo, and that's the Willie McCoy case, a young rapper who had fallen asleep at a Taco Bell line. He had a gun in his lap. He falls asleep or he's unconscious. The police come and, then they, and, and, and in the process they awaken him and they shoot him 55 times. Just shot him to smithereens. The question is, did they act properly or not? Now my police practice expert will say, look, you can't, you can't startle a person up by yelling and screaming at them. And then as soon as they wake up, before they have a chance to orient, you didn't shoot and kill them. You got to figure out a way to put yourself in a position of safety, of course, and to see how that person reacts. But you can't yell and scream and create a kind of hostile atmosphere and then kill them. Uh, that's happened. And m many years ago, there was a case down in Riverside, Tanisha, I want to call her name. It happened at the same time I did this Esther case, which is at 35th and MacArthur, where a young man had fallen asleep. And that was the same thing where a person had fallen asleep. Instead of waking her up gently, they, they open fire on her. Well, that has happened in three of our cases in Oakland. I think of the last case I had here uh, involving Pollock, that there was real efforts to reform the training for officers and to set forth a process when you come up on somebody who appears to be asleep, unconscious, whatever, drunk or whatever, and they have a weapon, they, how do you process that? And so there's efforts being made around that, and I think that ultimately... Uh, we should have fewer killings in the future, I hope. Okay. Hey, last question, John. With all of the talk about defunding the police, um, fundamentally rethinking the role of police, um, what needs to happen? And do you think that the movement is going to keep some of the momentum it has now? And is it a good idea? Well, I will tell you, the question with George Floyd to me has always been, is this a moment 
or is it a, can be a movement? I don't think it will be a movement around the question of shoot, don't shoot. That I don't see. That's a whole other question of training because you ask an officer to think about their lives, even though we think they shoot too quick, they're never going to just change, change. But there are, there's a lot of policing that occurs. It's not about shooting. Some of it, I mean, it ultimately becomes shooting, but it doesn't have to start out that way. And that is, to me, is the first one and most dear to me is how do you deal with the mentally impaired? And I think that you can defund the police, and I don't like the term defund per se, but you can transfer monies that you have set aside for just raw policing and transfer that to a social agency or another group to look and see how to handle mentally impaired people in a non felonious police way, law enforcement way. I think that's important. I think you can do that. You can do that with how do you deal with the homeless? When you're having police come up on homeless, you kick them to wake them up. Next thing you know, you wind up having to beat them up or you shoot them up. I think that that's, that's certainly an area. And there's other areas that I think that people talk a lot about. That, so I, my feeling about it is there's nothing wrong with rethinking the totality of policing to find out what's really relevant. Because if you read some of the a lot of policing is very boring. They're really just riding around, and they, they may work less than 10% of the time. That's why it seems to me they can get so action-oriented when they finally get some action. So the question is, what can we do with the rest of that time? Why should we be paying for that? That may be cutting back offices in terms of numbers, but it also means that we should be thinking about other places to put that money. Now, we have other questions that go to the overseeing of police. And who should monitor the police? Twenty-five years ago, the question was, who, who polices the police? And it was always a question, the police said they did. We say, well, maybe you shouldn't. And that's always, now, in Oakland, we developed a police um, uh, commission, commit, police commission. San Francisco, you have another police commission. And other cities do not. I do think there's some positive benefits that come from a civilian control over the police. And I know that there's a dispute about the police saying nobody can police us because the worst it's just to me that's ridiculous it's not rocket scientists it's not that challenging sure you got to make judgments and you could be trained on how to make exercise good judgment but you, i don't know that we should have this sacredness about policing that we should put it in a box that we can't look at we recognize that there come times when there are some issues but most of policing is not shooting you know most of it is you know, riding around. Now, there, there are issues of stop. Now, my big issue is stop that. That's taking taking the, the races, uh, the genders of people that officers stop so you can constantly study it, right? You can study it. Or, that's now, but more importantly, stopping them without basis for stopping them. That is to say, black man, like our black, a black man, and brown man in the neighborhood. I wonder what he's about. All right? He hadn't done anything. Or you're riding down the street and you see two black guys in the car. What the hell are they doing? You stop them, all right? Are kids walking down the street and you want to stop them, see what's going on? That's called, I refer to it as racial profiling. And that is a very bad thing because it, you can cause a minor event to become a major event when a person says, I haven't done anything and you infringe on my constitutional right. The police says, well, I'm the police. I get to say this. I get to do this. Put your hands up. Get on the ground. Or like in, like in the writer's case, we found out that African-Americans were being handcuffed at a high percentage, whereas white people who had the same kind of event were not being handcuffed, or that black officers could not handicap whites. We found these things out through gathering of the data. 
So there's a lot of work to be done. Yeah, well, it sounds like you, it sounds like you believe that reform is, is possible, but that, that the, at least the word defund um, I, I, I don't know about the word. I don't know what the word. I don't, I, people have this abolitions notion about it. I, I don't understand what that means because I don't believe you can have a situation where you can't have some law enforcement because if you do, if you don't, criminals will do bad stuff, you know. And so I, I believe that you have to have some mechanism to treat it. The question is, is it only against the black people? Is it only holding them in place and not holding other people accountable or having a, a different kind of enforcement. That is, you get a break, you smoke drunk, dope, this way it was, you smoke dope, you get to go, you get a charge. Or you have whatever cocaine, you get passed and you get, to, you get a charge. You get five years, he gets 10. Those are the kind of things that, are, that will really upset me to no end, and they do. Right. That's, that's well, called the mass, mass uh, criminalization process, mass incarceration. John, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Uh, it was good to see you. It's been a while. It's always good. Yeah, it's been a while. You know, we've, we used to be neighbors and sort of once upon a yeah, time. Yeah, you were a little higher up the hill than me. <laughs> yeah, but you moved out to the countryside. <laughs> you got a good life out there. All right, John. Thanks a lot. Thanks to my guest today, civil rights attorney John Burris, to Amy Schauscher-DePaula for producing this episode, and thank you for listening.